Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Kyle Mills is the author of this book, Code Red. The most recent release in the Vince Flynn, Mitch Rapp series. Kyle Mill joins me now. Good morning, Kyle. Congratulations. This is superb. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Not only did I enjoy it, Kyle, you know, my, my secret pleasure, my guilty pleasure is thrillers. I've been reading them since I was 10 or 12, and that means 50 years. I rarely read them in one day. I read this in one day, all day Saturday. I would not move from my chair. I haven't done that in a while. That's how good Code Red is. Yeah, that's basically what every thriller writer wants to hear, that you've created a page turner and that people are really excited and love to read it. And it's harder to do the longer a series goes on, I think, because you've got to reinvent the character. And I knew Vince pretty well. Vince was in the studio the day that he got his diagnosis of cancer, in fact. Uh, and he was a friend I've always loved that I'm glad they restarted it because Mitch Rapp's an American original, but this is your last Mitch Rapp book, right? It is. Yeah. I've done nine. I can't believe I've been doing this for 10 years now. It's, uh, been a, like a third of my writing career, but it's been an well, amazing ride. I have mixed emotions because you are at peak Kyle Mills, Vince Flynn, and I don't know what you're going to go on to. We'll talk about that after a bit. Let's first talk about the bill of uh, the book, which comes out tomorrow. You can order it today on Amazon. Code Red, Vince Flannery, and put Kyle Mills in. I want to go to page 164. Um, what do the Russians want? People have been asking that for centuries, and I don't think anyone's come up with a satisfactory answer. Bingo. And then we've got Mitch saying, the Russians don't play to win. They play to make other people lose. Boy, that's correct. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting, they're sort of a unique country that way. And if you think about like chess, it's very hard to beat somebody who's not playing to win. They just want to draw. And so Mitch has to deal with this through throughout Syria and all the Russians' plans to essentially just inflict damage on the world. Yeah, I do not want to give anything away. I never give anything away that's a spoiler, but I do want people to know. Paris and Prague, Syria and the United States, and a couple other places along the way, because we've got a cartel leader, we've got some very bad people in Syria, we've got the Russians, and we've got Mitch and his gang. And by the way, Stan Hurley gets an homage. Everybody gets an homage. Everybody, If you're looking for those touch points, I'm, that's not an issue. I want to talk to you about how you decided to use Syria. And uh, within five pages, also as backdrop, I was looking up Captagon, which I had never heard of until Code Red. Never heard of it. And I said, is, is Kyle making this up? And you're not. And and, and I didn't yeah. know. I'm pretty smart about this stuff. I had no idea that Syria had become a narco state. Yeah. You know, with all the sanctions and the civil war that pretty much destroyed the country, um, they don't have any way to make money. And producing narcotics and, and trafficking them has become a huge thing for them, mostly throughout the Middle East. But also now it's starting. They're starting to see big shipments come into uh, into Europe. And I, I have a scene in there in Italy, and that really happened. There was a huge, you know, tons of the stuff came in to an Italian port. So it's a new threat and a new drug that people have not focused that much on. I think the reason I kept reading so avidly is not only do you have the Russians number, and not only did you bring me up to Tate on Syria, but the plot is so plausible. Asymmetrical warfare requires second-rate powers like Russia to use new innovation like the media, which you understand completely, to attack the United States and the West generally. This is a very plausible and very troubling 
uh, plot that a lot of people attribute to China running fentanyl in the United States. I'm not sure I believe that. Uh, it's possible, but where did you come up with it? This is really very troubling. Well, I wanted to do a, something about asymmetrical warfare because it's so interesting. I mean, Russia is proving, again, that, that for them, fighting a, a conventional war is not a profitable enterprise. I mean, they're just getting creamed on this thing. And, but they have been incredibly effective at inflicting damage with asymmetrical warfare. They're the best in the world probably at it. And so I wanted to use that, but I wanted to come up with a new weapon. You know, something that no one's ever heard of before. And because of the Captagon uh, angle and Russia's involvement in Syria, it kind of made this perfect, it was, kind of, it was kind of a perfect thing to write about, that they could use that against the West, you know, when, because of our problems with the uh, narcotics trade in, in America and in Europe. When we come back after the break, and it'll all be on the podcast today, I'm going to talk with Kyle Mills about Captagon, about the specifics of Syria in 2023, about what what Mitch Rapp is up to in this novel, Code Red. But I want to, again, emphasize to my audience, I read this in one day. I never do that. It's full length. It's the full deal. I haven't done that in years, in fact. But the plot is so troubling and so well told. Go get Code Red. I'm going to be back with Kyle Mills after the uh, the program. All of it will air on iTunes today. I'm going to air part of this tomorrow morning because I think this book is a warning siren in the night that people need to pay attention to. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Harley. Thanks to everyone at the Salem News Channel, Salem Radio Network, all of our affiliates. I'll be back with Kyle Mills after the break. Stay tuned, America. I'm back now with Kyle Mills, author of Code Red, the new Vince Flynn, Mitch Rapp book. It's his last. I'm going to I'm going to first tell you I play Tchaikovsky's Third Symphony, Kyle, because that's the only musical reference in the book. Normally, I get my music from whatever book I'm reading. The only time you bring up is Tchaikovsky's Third Symphony, and I believe the bad guy is listening to it, right? That is right. I didn't know that about you. I'm going to put something really weird in the next one. Well, if that's first take me there. I, you know, I know we're talking about Code Red, and I will go back to it. What are you going to do? Don't stop writing. No, no, I'm not going to stop writing. I, I have a character named Fade that I wrote about years ago, and I've never been able to get him out of my head. And so he's a former Navy SEAL. He's a little off his rocker and has had a lot of physical problems and mental problems, all this stuff. And he was one of probably the most beloved book I ever wrote by my fans. And I've been wanting to revisit him for a long time. So what's the name of that book? I'm going to do it. That book is named Fade. Okay, I'm going to go back. I've not read Fade. And so you're going back to the home. And what year did it come out? Oh, a long time ago, 2004. Does it still so work in 2023? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, do. I don't know that you'd really notice other than his cell phone's really old. Yeah, that, well, that's um, what happens with things that are produced before 2007 is the phones are bigger. Uh, Kyle, um, I'm not sure your politics. I don't care. I, you know, I don't care about a writer. Danny Silva's a friend, and we don't agree on much, but I read every single book he puts out. But there's only one discordant note here. I do not think that there is a backlash in the United States against Latinos. I think maybe Russia thinks that. Do you believe it, or do you, do you think it's just something that they might try and exploit because they believe it? I think, uh, you know, I think in, if you look in the press that there is uh, a feeling that Latinos have are, are involved in the drug trade really heavily, that they are a criminal element in the United States. And that can be pumped up in the, uh, you know, using uh, disinformation, which is one of the things that Russia does extremely well. They get on social media and produce disinformation. I do believe that a lot of Americans are worried about an uncontrolled border and they are very worried about the cartels because of what fentanyl's done. But I think it would be pretty hard to move America into a xenophobic reaction in the way that a lot of the far right in Europe has moved. Do you think that problem presents itself in the United States, that potential? I think, there, I think there's that potential. I think there's always that potential if it's skillfully manipulated. And that was the idea here, that, the, that really the Russians would cause that problem. 
So, I mean, it, I don't know that it would be saying that it wasn't a real problem. They really did want to try to use cartels to bring all these dr- these very destructive drugs in. So I think it would be a real thing once they you know, got, unless we found out that they were behind it, but they were going to hide that. You know, we're taping this on the anniversary of 9-11. And I remember in the days after 9-11, I would not talk about things that people could do to destroy the United States because I was afraid people were listening. Now, by now we've had 20 years and I think everyone's done a pretty good job to defend the United States, except against asymmetrical warfare. Tell people about the general plot. I don't want to give anything away that you don't want to give away about Captagon because that's what worries me. Yeah, so Captagon has been big in terrorist networks in the Middle East forever, both selling it finances, the terrorism, particularly ISIS, and also taking it will make you go till you drop. So they they give it to the terrorist fighters. And the idea here was if you could create a drug, engineer a drug, essentially Captagon, that was specifically destructive to its users, caused psychosis, things like this, and then get it into the West, Europe, the United States. I mean, we already have this really serious fentanyl problem, and this would exacerbate that problem, you know, by 10 or something which again, inflicts damage on the West, which is what you know, the Russians are always after. It's what they, they see us as this major threat for whatever reason and always want to take us down. So that was the idea behind this. And let me tell people what the brilliant, the brilliant uh, plot point that I had not anticipated, selling it at a loss. The cartels do, I, I know a lot about the cartels because I was at Justice back in the days when the cartels got going and I had all the clearances. And so I followed it. They don't sell anything at a loss. They don't, they don't, they don't believe in losing money. But if you ever found a state actor that would sell at a loss, I, it just never occurred to me before. And it's terrifying, actually, Kyle Mills. Has anyone else noted that? I mean, has anyone said, oh my gosh, I have not thought about that before? Because I hadn't. Yeah, not too many people because, you know, the book isn't out till tomorrow. So uh, we'll see what everybody's reaction is. But yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a weapon in the, in the Russians' mind, and it's super cheap. I mean, even if they take a huge loss on it compared to conventional warfare, it's just a drop in the bucket. It's a biological weapon, which isn't look, doesn't look like a biological weapon because it looks like a drug. So it looks like uh, the West's problem with addiction being exploited, which we know is happening with fentanyl, and we think China is probably helping the cartels sell fentanyl in the United States for long-term purposes, but we don't think about them selling it at a loss, and the cartels certainly don't operate that way. So this is brilliant, and the place to do it would be Syria, which brings me to the next plot point. You know a lot about Syria. I've not done a deep dive since the Civil War was underway. I knew a lot about Syria when the Civil War was alive. You know a lot about Syria. How did you learn that? Oh, man, a lot of research. I, you know, it's funny. I blew my chance. I, I, my wife and I were going to drive through Syria back in the day, and I got too busy and didn't do it. And because, But I thought, oh, we'll do it next year because Syria is the most stable country in the Middle East. And then it completely collapsed, which, man, I did not see coming. And you know, so the only I've guy I've ever known who's gone through Syria is Robert Kaplan, who wrote East towards Tartary, and he went in when Hama rules were in effect when the uh, the elder Assad was Assad was alive, and he destroyed Hama when there was a bit of a revolution. So it was a dreary, horrible police state. But you know correctly, he was kind of a libertarian when it came to religion. Just just don't screw around with my control. And now it's just a. I mean, it's the worst place on earth. Yeah, it's it's just completely collapsed into in incredible poverty. The cities are destroyed. You know, Assad's doing fine, but uh, everyone else is, is, you know, just on the thin edge. There's still terrorist groups working there. Obviously, the drug trade is huge there. So getting that under control is hard, and particularly because it's the Russians' sphere of influence. It never really has been ours. You know, looking very late in the book, I'm not giving any away here. War zone kids, you spend two or three pages talking about war zone kids. And you have the example of a war zone kid. I remember a very haunting series of photographs about kids who grew up in a war zone. I appreciated you're doing that. Would you explain the two kinds of war zone kids? Yeah. You know, you've got sort of the hopeless ones who just kind of fall into despair and violence and things. And, uh, 
because it's all they've ever known. I mean, to, to grow up in a place that's always been at war, always been in poverty, uh, would twist you. And then, you know, you have the other kind that are constantly hopeful, that see the outside and see a path to success and peace. And in Mitch's lives, it's always those second ones that are so heartbreaking because he looks around as the realist he is and thinks, you really don't have much of a chance here. Yeah, it's a it's a very touching aside that most writers, uh, the best would would include it. So my hat's off to you. Let's go back to the Russians. You have a very perceptive understanding of what Ukraine has revealed. Would you tell people what Kyle's view is and how that shows up in Code Red? Yeah, you know, I've never, I think it's not too hard to see that from my history of writing that I'm not a fan of the Russians. And it's interesting because I wrote Code Red years ago about an invasion, uh, a Russian invasion into Ukraine and the Baltics. And as I did that research, it was very interesting to look into their military and their government and see that it's not particularly functional, that their military was very corrupt. It's, it's outdated. It's not well supplied. It's not well trained in the sense that the soldiers are really poorly treated. They do not have a lot of non-commissioned officers that are the backbone of a military. And to some extent, America and the West still see this boogeyman that, that's a holdover from the Soviet Union. The Russians only had a, a, an economy about the size of Texas's, and yet we still treated them like a world power and a major threat. And I think maybe this war has changed the way the world views them and see them as kind of the the vandals that they are, because that's really all they are. They're just people that slash your tires for no reason. Yeah, and take the car key across your brand new car. I love that. That was just exactly the Russians and the Russian elite. elite. In fact, at one point, got to go to my notes here. You describe Russia as um, uh, a old woman standing in the Siberian wind. I can't find it because my handwriting's so bad. And, and it's it's true. They're broken but they're dangerous. Do their nukes work? You make a reference in here as well that maybe those siloed weapons don't work anymore. I think they might. If I had to guess, I'd say a third of them work. That, that's the problem. Long, but that, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a <laughs> lot. So uh, I want to go down also to other things I didn't know. I did not know that there was a border wall, an actual honest-to-goodness border wall between Syria and Turkey. How big is it? Is yeah. it like the one you describe? Yeah, I think it's. I think it might be the second longest structure in the world, or something, after the Great Wall of China. It's it's huge. It, it is. It's pretty remarkable. Also, an aside that you put in: countries like China and Saudi Arabia were becoming impossible to travel in anonymously. I knew that was true about China. I did not know that was true about the kingdom. Is that Kyle Mills? Yeah. Or is that research? No, 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 that's absolutely true. I mean, think about it. You've got an authoritarian government with a lot of money. First thing they do is, you know, support their own power. And one of the ways to do that now is make sure you have everything under camera with facial recognition and all that. So it definitely changes the way you write, you know, characters like Mitch Rapp going into foreign countries because they always have to be, you know, have that in their mind that they're looking for them. I think Great Britain is the same way, by the way. I also believe Israel is the same way. And I think some parts of, of America are the same way, like the capital, the Beltway. I don't think you can go anywhere in the Beltway where you're not observed very closely and that facial recognition is at work because that's part of the anti-terrorism thing. There is a terrorist attack in here, uh, in Germany, not the first one in um, mm -hmm. Salerno, but the second <clears throat> one. Is that based on fact? Um, it's based on some actions that have been taken in Europe, for sure. I mean, I live in Europe, so I see how, you know, there, there are a lot of countries that are very falling into very much an anti-Muslim, uh, you know, standpoint. And so I wanted to show that, that, that if you, if Russia prompted and financed some of these terrorist actions there, that they could strategically use that to amp up those feelings, the xenophobia in places like Germany. And it wouldn't be that hard. You know, it's again, it's super cheap to get one guy to go into a crowd and start shooting compared to buying a tank. 
That is why it is so very, very disturbing. I don't know if you watched Breaking Bad from wherever you live. Did you ever watch Breaking Bad? I did. Yeah, I love that show. Yeah, your cartel boss reminds me of the cartel boss there and in um, uh, the, the Ozarks. They're not, they're very smart people. Did you base your cartel boss on anybody in particular? No, not really. Um, that was kind of part of my imagination, but uh, I find that them to be an interesting business organization because they make so much money. I mean, you're talking about they, they, they make money like Ford Motors kind of money. And so they are much more sophisticated than a lot of people think. They think they're all their drug dealers on the street, but at the top, you know, they've, they've got a whole accounting system and business system and, and, you know, they control governments and all this. So they're fun to write about. Uh, they're very, so very violent, but they are very, very calculating in the bottom line. That, again, I go back to that plot yeah. twist where if people are willing to sell the stuff at a loss, we're in trouble. Uh, we're already in trouble anyway. Kyle, I want to look forward. Are you going to tackle China ever? Is it just too hard? Yeah, it's it's really hard because they're such a such a complex threat. They can't really come after the West too much because we buy all their stuff. So, you know, they want to consolidate their power in their region and we're battling for that. So. I just haven't come up with the right plot that, that wouldn't call you know, wouldn't be a 4,000 page book. You see what I think the problem might be for, and generally there's a hole in the, in the genre when it comes to Beijing and the CCP is that we don't know enough about it publicly and none of us speak Mandarin and we haven't got a Le Carre who grew up doing it. Do you think that might account for why there's a hole in the genre? I think so. Also, one of the things that is a practical matter is funny is sending a agents to fight in or to do operations in China is really hard unless they're Asian and speak Chinese. I mean, I've spent time in China and let me tell you, you can't even guess on the like you can go to Europe and guess what people are saying. But you, the culture, the languages are all very, very different. So now, right I now, haven't been there in years and I ain't going back. And and I ain't What's going that? back because they put malware on all your phones, right? I probably have malware on my phone, but they are very good at this. Now, my last question, Kyle, and then I think people are going to go buy Code Red. I think you have number one bestseller on it. The last question about the book. When, when you end up at the end, you suggest that what Semenov, the bad guy, wants is for the United States to be ruled by an authoritarian. Do we really think that? Because... That's kind of their worst nightmare is having an authoritarian running the United States. I don't want an authoritarian. I like the Constitution. I love the Constitution, but I don't think that's what they want. Do you think it's what they want? I think it may well be because authoritarians tend to stick together. You know, they, nobody wants to see and an, one authoritarian does not want to see another one fall. This is one of the things that Vladimir Putin was obsessed with. Apparently, he used to watch, uh, you know, the deaths of Gaddafi, the video over and over and over again. And uh, because he's he's obsessed with the idea that if somebody that powerful could fall, that he could, too. The same thing could happen to him. So I think, I think they want a failed historic. state. I think they want Mexico to the Mexico model to become the American model. There is no authoritarian in Mexico. They're not running it. Right. That, that's yeah. a distributed power. And that would work, it. too. Yeah. That would work too. I just think they don't want someone who would come in and actually be like Xi, because then you've got a real problem on your hand. You've got a competitor. They want a failed state. So, Kyle, in terms of fade, and I know, by the way, I've never seen a note like Emily Bessler's note. I've been reading thrillers for 50 years. You must get along really well with Emily Bessler. It's a love letter to the author, Kyle Mills, who's going away. Uh, did you know that was coming? No, no, I did not. Um, so it, I mean, Emily's been amazing. She's such an amazing publisher and how I was welcomed into that fold and all her comments and her knowledge of, of the series and everything. It's just been kind of a dream job. Um, and the fans have been super accepting, which I didn't know that was going to happen when I took it over. I thought they might, you know, aim at me with their cars or something for trying to take over this incredibly beloved series, but. It's been great. Oh, I've always thought 
uh, Vince would be very happy because his family wanted you to do this, right? They they had the hand in picking you to succeed. So what did the family say when you said, hey, guys, 10 years, 10 novels, I got to do something else? I think they understood. And I I wouldn't want to get stale and write a bad one. I mean, that that's like the, the fear I have when I wake up in the morning is, could I write a bad one? And I felt like I had taken Mitch through this obvious arc. I'd put him at a different place in his life and everything. And it just felt like things had wrapped up nicely. And it was a good time to let somebody else have a, a their perspective on it. And they found Don Bentley, which was the dream choice. And he's going to do an amazing job. Well, the smart thing is, like Jimmy Brown, the late Jimmy Brown, who was honored in Cleveland yesterday, Go out when you're at the very top of your game. And Kyle, you did with this. Congratulations on Code Red. It is just fabulous. Success with Fade. Come back and talk to me when Fade comes out or whatever the next name one is. But in the meantime, everyone, Code Red is available today. Go out and get it at Amazon.com or any bookstore anywhere, every airport across the world. Code Red by Vince Flynn, the latest in the Mitch Rap. The author, Kyle Mills. Always a pleasure, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for having me. America, bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt from Studio North. Good Monday to you. Now, I got a lot of bad news to go through here today. I mean, what a week. What a weekend. I got personal bad news. I got uh, regional bad news. I've got national bad news and international bad news. So, Matt, can I begin with the good news? Let's just begin with the good news. I mean, the really good news. The Browns won their home opener 24 to 3 and crushed the Bengals. Sorry, Cincinnati. Crushed the Bengals. Uh, 24 to 3. And that is only the second time since 1999 when I bought my season tickets that the Browns have won the home. My nephew was there yesterday. Now, it, admittedly, it rained like uh, a downpour throughout the game. It was miserable. But, and so I, I feel bad for my nephew and, and his guests. But, but, but. It was just a miserable day. So I feel bad for everyone except the Browns won 24 to 3. And that's only the second time since 1999 they've won their home opener. And it's the first time since 2004 that they've won their home opener. So uh, they've only actually, I think they've won three home openers since they came, uh, three openers since 1999. So this is the year. This is finally the year. We're going to the Super Bowl. If it was legal to gamble in Maine and it's not, I would have gambled. Now, it is legal to gamble in Michigan, and those of you who listen to the show on Friday, I don't think we have any new affiliates today, so you may have listened to the show on Friday, think, well, why didn't you gamble in Michigan? I don't gamble, but I, I would have bought a ticket on the Browns winning the Super Bowl this year because they're that good. I hope somebody goes out and does that. And why didn't you do that from Michigan? The answer is, I didn't go to Michigan. The answer is, I did not go to Michigan. I spoke all last week about how much fun it was going to be to go to my 40th law school reunion at the University of Michigan Law School, had all the tickets, bought all the events, dropped a lot of money on hotels that could not refund and and reunion events that I don't want to refund, the, the, the law school would keep the money. Uh, and I was going to see Dwight and John and Tim and Trish and you know, Fergie and a lot of people who were going to be there I have not seen in a long time. And was really looking forward to it because if you're in a first year law school section, uh, you get very close to those people because all you do is spend time with those people. Any first year graduate program, you just get to know your section mates and especially your study group mates. Bump, good speed, people that I lived with. I was really looking forward to it. Well, here's the deal. I was uh, I was going to leave on Thursday, but then word came that my friend Terry had declined precipitously. So the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and I made a journey on Thursday to see our buddy and his wonderful wife, and he has declined precipitously. And you can say a prayer for our friend. Uh, I I I don't think he's going to make. I didn't think he was going to make it a week, and I don't think he's going to make it this week. But we wanted to visit, so we did. So I went on Friday, and uh, this is not a United story; it is a Delta story. Portland International Jetport, which I drove down to to do this. Portland International Jetport has eight gates, maybe nine. It you know it's it's not really a jetport, but it flies to Canada, so it's an international jetport. You almost always have to take connecting flight, except to the Beltway. That's why it's convenient to the Beltway. 
But I wasn't going to the Beltway. I was going to Detroit. And Detroit does, in fact, have a direct flight. And I, I would have taken that on Thursday and taken Friday off, but I, I had to, I wanted to go see Terry, so I didn't do that. So I was going to take a connector to LaGuardia, and, you know, that's an hour flight. And then from LaGuardia to Detroit, even though they were all drunk there, because the Lions beat somebody, I can't remember, oh, the, the, the Kansas City Chiefs on Thursday night, I thought this is going to be grand, I'll get there. Well, the flight up from LaGuardia landed and blew out a tire. Now, that happens at airports. You can't really get upset about a tire. I'm, I'm glad I went on the plane, but everyone was safe. They got off. Guess how many spare tires they have at Portland International Jetport? Dwayne, you want to you want to hazard a guess on that? Spare tires for a plane? Yeah, at, at Portland International Jetport. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, in round number zero. 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 So originally now, the now cars they probably do because that that place could also be a car care center. It, it could be a car care center, and I I have to applaud Delta because they had a a Swedish girl at the desk, and she came on and said, uh, "We're going to be delayed to one thirty, and we're waiting for a tire to come up from Laguardia." So they begin to send you text notices. So I'm going to get I'm going to get to Detroit about. 10 o'clock at night. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll miss day one, but I'll go. And then at 1.30, she comes on, the Swedish girl, like the Swedish chef talking to me from Sesame Street says, oh, I've got to tell you, we're not going to make it at 1.30 because there is no plane. We did. She said, well, frankly, she talks to a, one of the older women, leans over and says something. She says, well, look, the reality is we have no clue when we're going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're waiting. <laughs> They're waiting on a white wall from Kitty Bunkport. <laughs> no, they're waiting on a white wall from LaGuardia, and they don't know that it got on the plane because they don't know if it got there. So Delta, but candor points, right? Candor points. So the white wall doesn't come, and they provide me with an alternative to arrive in um, in Minneapolis at midnight and get to Detroit sometime. And I say, what tomorrow look like? Can I fly in Detroit in time? to make it to the pregame reunion lunch and the cottage inn reunion afterwards, I can get there at four o'clock on Saturday. And the game at the, at the big house started at three. So I could have made the after game party and then turn around and left. So I called up the fetching Mrs. Hewitt and said, fetching Mrs. Hewitt, will you please come and get me and bring me home? I'm not doing this. And we did that. And you know what? I didn't complain about it on Twitter. And you know why? It's a first world problem. And I had just seen my friend Terry. And that's a real problem, right? When your your spouse is caring for you at home and you're in hospice and you say that that's actually a real problem. Worst case every- scenario, you didn't have to go to Michigan. That's true. I did not have to go to Michigan. Now, regionally, the bad news is Hurricane Lee became Tropical Storm Lee overnight, but is expected to become Hurricane Lee again. And guess where it's aimed? Do you know where it's aimed, Dwayne? Portland International Jetport. Or, or places north. Now, it is possible that it's going to turn away. But if you, you know my buddy Jaeger, right? I do. Jaeger is supposed to come here with his wonderful wife for the weekend. <laughs> As we, you know, we're only here for three or four more weeks. And then we got to go back to the Beltway and go to work. Right. And uh, the we got guests every weekend. And the Jaegers are supposed to come here all the way from California. Yep. To Portland International Jetport. Actually, I think they're smart in flying to Boston and taking the train. My question is, would you fly to a place inside the cone of a hurricane that's supposed to arrive on Saturday? Up there? Sure. The worst it's going to be is a Cat 1, right? No. What do they if it's a trop if it's a trop storm now, what do they what do they It was a 5 that drop to a trop storm and right. will rapidly re-energize. It's not going to get up to a five again. It's going to be a three. Now, I'm hoping it hits. Oh, I hate okay. to say this. I think it's going to hit the maritime provinces of Canada. But, but the wind cone, at least, is going to hit here. But the beautiful main weather and going to the islands. And All going I out- care about is, do you have Maui Power and Electric monitoring your electric pole that feeds the internet and power to your house. Hadn't thought about that, but I do See, have a I generator. Have. I have a generator. Okay. 
I've got a generator. Uh, people should know. Uh, about five years ago, we came up here for the 20th time because the Fishing Monsieur has family here. And we said, you know, we're going to we're going to get a place up here because this is going to be where I spend a lot of California here and, and the Beltway is where we're going to spend a lot of time. So we we got a place two years ago and it's it's on main time and main contractors sort of work on an unusual schedule. So it'll be finished in 2030. But it, it but it, did, did, did you get a hold of Mr. Kimball? Uh, no, Mr. Kimball has not. Mr. Kimball's <laughs> supposed to come by today, as a matter of fact, because <laughs> actually, there actually, is a Mr. Kimball. There is a there Mr. is a Kimble. Mr. Kimball. There are three Mr. Kimballs. Yes. And and one of the Mr. Kimballs house was supposed to get painted this summer. House was supposed to get a level path this summer, and the house was supposed to get gutters this summer by three Mr. Kimballs. And guess what? We do not have. <laughs> And any of those things. And, and by funny coincidence, all three Mr. Kimballs, all three of them have the first name of Bert. So, so Bert and I, Ben and I went up to Muskegon Farm. So, and on a national national level, we got Joe Biden coming up. And on an international level, none of us have problems because we don't live in Morocco. That is a devastating thing. I don't even know who to tell you to send aid to. Because I don't know who works in the Atlas Mountains. But I'll be back with with updates. Joe Biden in Vietnam. Oh, boy. Uh, Going to be President Kamala Harris pretty soon, America. I, I really do believe that. Stay tuned. I'm you, Joe. Good morning, America. I hope you just missed my long ramble of the weekend. Time to get to work. Morocco is devastated. And if the death toll today is 2,200, by the end of the week, it's going to be double, triple, quadruple that. And it is awful. Uh, the Atlas Mountains are not easy to get to. I read um, voraciously three things this weekend, Morocco coverage, because people are always great when they're trying to help. I mean, they really bring a, a couple of Brits just walked up there and started, took water with them and walked up there and started helping people out. And I don't know what where to give. You have to find your own. I, I just don't, I, I don't want to recommend anyone because I don't know who operates in Morocco or who can operate in Morocco. Uh, then I spent all weekend because I wasn't at my reunion reading Code Red. I had, I had it with me. I was going to read it on the airplane, but it would have been a sprint as it was. I read it in one day. This is a really fine book. The Vince Flynn series with Kyle Mills as the writer. He's going to be along today. And then I spent a lot of time watching President Biden in the G20 and then on to Vietnam. And we are in trouble as a country. We are in trouble. I actually think the president of the United States ought to retire. I do not think he's up to this. And this is not a partisan statement. Uh, my my brother-in-law turns 80 today and happy birthday to him. And we will, we will toast him and celebrate him. And he's in great health. He's worked at it. He's sharp. He's smart. Graduate of the United States Naval Academy, Marine, couple of tours in Vietnam, wonderful guy. And he's sharp and smart. So I know sharp and smart. 80 doesn't mean you can't be sharp and smart. But the president is not sharp and smart. In fact, David Axelrod on CNN, I'll play you the clips from Vietnam, but at the end of that, Kurt Schlichter said, I guess Hewitt and Grinnell are right, that they're going to have to pull the guy. And I I cannot see him running a campaign. No one's going to vote for him. Donald Trump will crush him. I don't care if Donald Trump's convicted four times uh, and on appeal. He's going to crush Joe Biden because Americans will not vote for someone who cannot, isn't doing the job. This is the hidden hand presidency. We have no idea who is running things. Jake Sullivan is running things, I think. And have you ever met Jake Sullivan? And I have friends who think Jake Sullivan's perfectly fine. I have friends who don't think he's perfectly fine. But in any event, nobody voted for him. Joe Biden is not running the country. And David Axelrod said so yesterday on CNN Cut 27. Well, look. Uh, I've been very clear from the beginning. Uh, Let me say one thing as a preface to this. Uh, Phil said uh, something important, which is, you know, hooking up, connecting up with the nation's mood. You can't jawbone people into feeling better. You can't jawbone people into thinking that whatever they're experiencing isn't what they're experiencing. And, you know, I think that... uh, the, the president has to find a way to talk about the things that he's done in a context other than 
kind of asking for a report card from the American people, because if that's what he does, uh, it's pretty clear right now that that's not going to work out well. If he takes more populist bent on the fights that he's fought and why he's fought them, I think he has a better chance. But in terms of your question, Poppy, I've been very clear from the beginning. If you gave me Joe Biden and lopped 15 years off of him and gave me this record, uh, I would be very confident about the next election polls, notwithstanding that is not the case. And I don't, you know, navigating this age issue is hard because people are not just saying, how is he performing now? They're also trying to, uh, postulate how he'll perform, uh, when he's 83, 84, 85. And, uh, that's a difficult question to answer, but he is running. I mean, he's made clear that he is running. And I can tell you that the mood of Democrats is that. As long as he is running, uh, no one wants to challenge him and weaken him in what many Democrats consider an existential fight with Donald Trump. You know, now if Trump went away, I think the feeling might be different. I don't know. But no president has ever been uh, benefited from a primary challenge and, and presidents generally win primary challenges. So, you know, I think this is in Joe Biden's hands and he has to decide uh, whether he can uh, whether he can complete this task and win this election and prevent uh, what many people fear would be a disaster for the country. And if not, then he should step aside. But, uh, no, you know, what I, I did you hear I, the lightning strike? He has to decide if he can win this election and then step aside. There isn't a question. He's not going to finish a second term. I don't think he's going to finish this term. Now, uh, I think David Axelrod, is one of the best analysts in America. His book, Believer, My 40 Years in Politics, it's a fabulous book. If you want to understand someone from the left, it's a fabulous book. David is a very smart guy, and I have a lot of respect for him. And there he said the truth. He said the quiet part out loud. The president is declining precipitously. And I'm going to play the clips after the break. I mean, he's really in bad shape. I'm coming back with Joe Biden in Vietnam and on the G20, and it was not pretty. And the president, we should have President Harris soon. Stay tuned on YouTube. We used them on third down, on fourth down. Uh, they were electric. Uh, that, that building was electric. So kudos to our fans. We can take tomorrow off. Um, Coach Kevin Stefanski in Cleveland after the Browns crushed the Bengals 24-3. If you're new here, you know, if you joined up in the last year, I can be annoying on Mondays after a Browns win. I'm very annoying on Twitter. I think uh, I've been muted by more people on Twitter on Sunday because I don't do politics on Sunday, and I, I just don't. But, you know, the Browns have kind of ramped up slowly since they came back to the league in 1999. The show began in 2000. So people have been listening from the original eight station. We have 475 outlets now. And we began with eight stations in the year 2000. And we've ramped up slowly in Cleveland when the Browns returned after the man who must not be named moved the franchise that I grew up loving uh, and moved to uh, Baltimore. And it took three years to come back. And they came back in 1999. Of course, I got season tickets right away. I got two in the club section and then bought four at the top of the stadium where my dad's tickets used to be. I went to every home Browns game from 1965 until uh, I went to school in 19. 19- 74, and then I would make it occasionally for playoffs and things like that and go to see him on the road, see him play in California, see him play in Baltimore, see him play all over the place. I am a Browns fan, first, last, always. I'm also a Guardians fan. They've had a rough year. But I, I love the Cavaliers and the Ohio State University Buckeyes who managed to beat the Penguins of the United of Youngstown State somehow. But I really love it when we beat, look, in order. Honestly, honestly, I love beating the Ravens more than anything. But I... I kind of go out to dinner on beating the Steelers because they are the long-time run. Beating the Bengals is kind of routine for us. Now, if you are, I say us because it is us. If you've been a season ticket holder since 1999, you got more equity in the team than most of these players. And I, I have a seat license, which I think worth zero. Uh, four of them, in fact. Now, here's the real deal. I really like beating people who mock Cleveland before they come to Cleveland. Last year, Juju Smith-Schuessler of the uh, of the Steelers sends Browns is the Browns, and they cr- we crushed the Steelers that game. Well, this this week, Jamar Chase, Mister you know super athlete, great athlete, great receiver, and Joe Burrow's favorite receiver said, "Well, you know the Browns. What are they? The Elves?" And then yesterday after the game, he said this: 
Because I called the ass elves, and we just lost to some elves. So I'm pissed on my part. I'm not I'm pissed on Alan adding. Um, like I said, man, we got missed opportunities. We didn't capitalize on it. No, you know what you ought to say? You ought to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's what you ought to say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because uh, mocking fellow professional, especially in a game where someone like Jack Conklin is a wonderful guy, great guy around Cleveland, blows out his knee. Right. So the guy just signed a four year contract. I'm sure two years of it's guaranteed. He's not going to be poor, but I hope he can come back next year. But that looked bad. Prayers for Jack Conklin. Now let's get to the news. Joe Biden. Oh, my goodness. Dwayne, um, on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. With Joe Biden 15 years going ago being a 10, like David Axelrod said, where was Joe Biden this weekend? Uh, objectively, if, yeah. if we're talking Joe Biden 15 years ago, a two. Objectively, it was that bad. I don't know if it can get worse. They're not going to let us see it get worse. Uh, it's it would hard to be worse than being p- literally played off the world stage. Yeah, and we're gonna. Which one is that? Okay, it's cut number nine. Let's let's start with the end and then work our way to and it and work our way backwards because this is the end. President Biden gets a question about which I am uncertain, and they actually play him off the stage when the press says, that's it, we're leaving now, because the president is mumbling. Cut number nine. We talked about, we talked about at the conference overall, we talked about stability, we talked about making sure that the third world, the, uh, excuse me, third world, the, uh, the, the, uh, the southern hemisphere had access to change it, had access we, it wasn't confrontational at all. You came with thank, thank you, everybody. This ends thank, the count press thank, conference. Thank, Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. That's a live band playing the free, the leader of the free world off the stage. But he's still talking, and he's still talking. They cut his mic. They cut his mic, and then he actually shuffles off. Now he's eighty years old, and he's got jet lag. I understand that. But, but, but everybody watches the United States. Everybody watches. Everybody says, hmm, hmm. What do we make about that? Not cut number eight. Cut number eight. In the light for, and uh, I see, I'm just following my orders here. I have a game plan. He may have a game plan. He just hasn't shared it with me. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go to bed. Cut number seven. And guess what? In addition to helping the environment overall, and the only existential threat humanity faces, even more frightening than a, than a nuclear war, is global warming going above 1.5 degrees in the next 20, 10 years. And we're in real trouble. There's no way back. Cut number six. For, and uh, let's see. I'm just following my orders here. Uh, <laughs> staff, does anybody have a spoken? Uh, I ain't calling on you. I'm calling on you. I said they have five questions. I need it. Be away. They've pre-selected everyone. They've pre-screened everyone. Cut number five. For example, you know, one of the things we're doing in terms of, uh, I, I proposed a long time ago at the G7, now it's going to come to fruition in the G20, is making sure that we build a railroad all the way across the African continent. Think about it. We're not doing that. Okay, cut number, just so, just to make you... Just to let you know, America, no, we're, we're not, not doing that. We're, we're actually not doing that. We're not doing that, and I don't want you to think we're doing that. Cut number four. I, you know what? So my, Go, just play it, then I'll talk about this. Cut number four. My brother loves having his famous lines and movies that he always quotes. You know, and one of them is there's was, was a movie about John Wayne. He's an Indian scout, and they're trying to get the, I think it's a patch of one of the great tribe in America back on the reservation and he's standing with the union so he's all on their horses and their saddles 
and there's three or four unions that are headdresses, and the union soldiers. The union soldiers are basically the same unions. Some of me will take care of it when we have anything to be good, and the Indian scout, the Indian looks at John Wayne and points to the union soldier and says, he's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. Well, there's a lot of lion dog-faced pony soldiers out there about, about global warming. Not anymore. All of a sudden, all right, stop for a second. When I heard, when I read that the president had again said someone was a lying dog-faced pony soldier, I thought to myself, that's a deep fake. That can't be true. Just like I thought to myself when they played him off the stage, that can't be true. Oh. I had to go authenticate these things because I said to myself, as you probably said to yourself, those things didn't happen. Couldn't you made possibly, that stuff up. Right. It, it's impossible. And, and it actually did happen. It, it and, did. It's, I, I, and he had just come from India. So I thought he can't be talking about Indians after having been in India. And uh, he can't be. He, he, it just isn't possible. And I, I got to play out the rest of this because cut number three. I have not I have not given up at all on the notion that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, how can I say it? Uh, I, I think I think we can triple the renewable capacity for, uh, as it relates to uh, global warming, by the year 202030. 20, 20, 30. The, the year 202030. And then, and then, this is maybe the greatest strategic mistake. You don't have to say we're going to contain China. But the reason the president is in Vietnam, this happens at the G20 before he goes to Vietnam, the reason he is in Vietnam is to contain China. Cut number two. So really what this trip is about is less about containing China. I, I, I don't want to contain China. I just want to make sure we have a relationship with China that is on the up and up, squared away. Everybody knows what it's all about. If I were the Vietnamese, I would have played him off right then and there. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't in Vietnam then. He was in uh, India. No, that, that, was, that was at Hanoi. No, that's at G20, according to my notes. That, that, was, at, that was at Hanoi. Oh, okay. That that would have been bad. Uh, they would have played him off earlier. And then one last thing. He's in Vietnam. All right. He's in Vietnam. What don't you bring up except in the most diplomatic language in Vietnam? The fact that we were at war with Vietnam for 15 years or a dozen years and that, OK, we've agreed to put all that. But I've been to Vietnam and I know that they push Vietnam war in your face. But then they always say, don't worry, Americans, we're over it. We're actually at war with China. I literally, every time you go anywhere in Vietnam, you'll find out when we beat when we beat the Americans in the American War in 1975, we weren't really upset. We're really upset with China, who's invaded us 14 times. America only invaded us once. And and so what you do not bring up, though, a lot of people are are dead, missing and injured. A lot of people hate the communists. A lot of people love the communists. I'm not into the I'm, it's not a comment about Vietnam. But generally, when Americans go to Vietnam, they speak in um, the most anodyne, uh, bland, vanilla statements about the Vietnam War. Here's what Joe Biden says, cut number one. It is evening, isn't it? This crown the world in five days is interesting. Well, uh, you know, there's that one of my staff members said a really famous song, you know, Good Morning Vietnam, and Good Evening Vietnam. All right, it's uh, not a song, it's a movie. And if you bring up that movie, you're bringing up Robin Williams in the middle of the war. Uh, I just got to say, he was, he was freelancing. I understand he's 80, and I understand he's jet-lagged, and I understand I don't like going around the world in five days. I've never done it. I've gone around the world in two weeks. But I've never done that. When we come back, uh, I got it. I'm going to have to add something to the podcast because the the grand old pod today over at the Universe is Generalissimo and I. We're going to talk about Jennifer Granholm and her EV road trip, which wasn't a road trip on the Universe today. I want to make sure you don't miss that. But I got to tell you, we are we are in deep trouble. The free world. You know, he met with MBS, the king of Saudi Arabia, yesterday. 
and for the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And I saw that picture and I thought, MBS is thinking, this guy isn't going to last three years. Why in the world do I care what he says? Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Tom Cotton represents Arkansas. He was also in Harvard Law School when 9-11 happened. Good morning, Senator. How are you? I'm doing well, Hugh. Good morning to you. Uh, can you tell us your reaction? I haven't talked much about the 9-11 anniversary today because I was waiting for you. Can you tell or remind the audience of your reaction to 9-11, what you did thereafter? Well, yeah, Hugh, like uh, most Americans alive that day. I mean, I remember very vividly back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth before smartphones and Wi-Fi. Uh, everybody in my class didn't know what had happened for about an hour, hour and a half until we walked out and saw the Anxiety, the tears, the concern of so many classmates who had been from or worked in the New York metro area. Um, but, uh, you know, from that day forward, I had really resolved to join our country's military and fight for freedom overseas. It took me a few years to finish school and get all my financial and professional affairs in order uh, to do that. But uh, I ended up serving about five years in active duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I think as we look back on uh, that terrible morning, uh, it's a reminder that there are monsters out there in the world, uh, and they mean to do the United States harm, and that we didn't take them seriously in the 1990s, and that we should be taking them seriously now, not just the threats of terrorist organizations like al-Qaeda and ISIS, but Chinese communists or Iranian theocrats and others. Now, Senator Cotton, on 9-12, America came together and marched forward unified for a while. I was reading yesterday Winston Churchill's first volume of the World War I memoir, and, he, you know, England was on the verge of a civil war in Ireland in the spring and early summer of 1914. And Churchill writes in his memoirs, First Lord of the Admiralty, the world did not realize that if anything were to happen that threatened Great Britain, it would instantly turn to and come into line. And as it did, do you think the same thing would happen in America today? Well, Hugh, my main priority would be ensuring that we never have to test that hypothesis, uh, that we never have another day like we did on 9-11 or, for that matter, December 7th, 1941, that we are so strong and so resolute uh, that no terrorist organizations can succeed in attacking us, nor a country like China or Iran or Russia can uh, get the drop on us and launch that kind of surprise attack against us. Um, but, but failing that, I'm confident the American people, uh, obviously, as we did after 9-11, as we did after Pearl Harbor, uh, would be unified uh, in determination to fight back and punish our aggressors and defeat them. I, I agree with that. I, I agree with that completely. Now to the tough question. Do you believe that President Biden's trip abroad made the world safer or more dangerous and why? Unfortunately, Hugh, it made... America, uh, or put America at greater risk as it normally does because it, it illustrated that he's just not up for the job, the bumbling and the stumbling in India and Vietnam, um, you know, the kind of excessive rhetorical deference to communist China, insisting that we don't mean to contain them, that we simply want to have a, a positive, friendly relationship. These are the kinds of things that uh, aggressive dictators like Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin see as weakness and inviting and tempting uh, our adversaries to take a shot at the title. The exact kind of weakness, for instance, that John F. Kennedy projected in 1961 and 1962 through a long train of concessions that led uh, Nikita Khrushchev and the Politburo to believe they could put nuclear missiles in Cuba. Um, so it, it's a regrettable fact that Joe Biden doesn't just project weakness as a matter of deliberate policy and the choices his administration makes, like, for instance, paying $6 billion in ransom for hostages in Iran, but also in his manner and his affect in the simple way that he appears in public. Now, Senator, the Ukrainian policy of the president has left America divided and confused. I don't actually think it's his policy. I think it's Jake Sullivan's policy, but the national security advisor but it's confusing. And David Petraeus, who rarely steps out, stepped out last week in Great Britain and said, America have to sell, I think they're called ATACs, I'm not sure, long range missiles, like our allies have done, but not in sufficient quantities, or give them to Ukraine. Do you agree? And do you see any thread of coherence in the administration's policy on Ukraine? 
Uh, no, Hugh, uh, I support Ukraine. I don't support Joe Biden's Ukraine policy. For 18 months, he's pussyfooted around, indulged half measures, uh, which, as usual, have not succeeded. Um, actually, I could go back more than 18 months, Hugh, as we were talking earlier about deterring threats. Joe Biden tempted Vladimir Putin to a trial of strength to borrow from Churchill's sinews of peace speech in 2021 to do what he's always wanted to do. Vladimir Putin has always wanted to reassemble the old constituent parts of the uh, Russian empire, Ukraine foremost among them. Um, it happened under Barack Obama, then it happened under Joe Biden. I tell my Democratic friends in the Senate that uh, I noticed that Vladimir Putin only invades Ukraine when re Democrats are president. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, because they project weakness and hesitancy and timidity in the face of Russian aggression. That wasn't the case with Donald Trump. I mean, you know, the former President Trump on your show last week, I heard, said that this would have never happened if he were president. He, he should actually take a little more credit for it. It did not happen. He's not in the situation of most presidential candidates of saying what would or would not happen. It did not happen for four years because we took a strong and resolute stand. But with Joe Biden, you had him immediately extending the New START Treaty with no concessions from Russia, Vladimir Putin's number one priority. You had him then uh, waiving sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that President Trump had imposed. Vladimir Putin's second priority. You had him rewarding Vladimir Putin with a glitzy summit in Europe in the summer of 2021. You had the a debacle in Afghanistan just a few weeks after which uh, Russia began to marshal troops on Ukraine's borders. So Joe Biden tempted Vladimir Putin to go for the jugular. And then that having failed to deter it, he continued to just trickle out the flow of arms to Ukraine, only enough so they wouldn't lose, but certainly not enough so they could win decisively. And the long-range missiles that you mentioned, they're called ATACMs, Army Tactical Missile Systems, should have been provided months ago, should have been provided last year, just like every other missile or weapon system. We've seen this repeatedly. Joe Biden draws some silly red line because he's afraid of Vladimir Putin's uh, policy of bluff. And then three or six months later, he relents and he sends the weapons when it's too late to have stopped the Russian invasion or stopped the invasion in the tracks, or it's harder to try to reverse that invasion, as you see now, because Russia has dug in deep on defensive lines. So uh, I, I agree with what David Petraeus recently said. I've been saying it myself for more than a year. And, and as you sometimes allude to, what Richard Nixon said in the Yom Kippur War should have been our policy from the very beginning Ukraine, send everything that shoots on everything that flies. Well said. Now, Senator, I want to go back to politics. Uh, and I don't know if you heard David Axelrod yesterday. I, I want to play for you. It's a long clip, but I want to play for you. Cut number 27 so I can get your reaction. David Axelrod is very smart. Very, very smart. His memoir, Believers, 40 Years in Politics, is maybe the best book by a leftist I've read. And he's a very nice guy. Here is Axelrod. Well, look, uh, I've been very clear from the beginning. Uh, let me say one thing as a preface to this. Uh, Phil said an, uh, something important, which is, you know, hooking up, connecting up with the nation's mood. You can't jawbone people into feeling better. You can't jawbone people into thinking that whatever they're experiencing isn't what they're experiencing. And, you know, I think that, uh, the, the president has to find a way to talk about the things that he's done in a context other than kind of asking for a report card from the American people, because if that's what he does, uh, it's pretty clear right now that that's not going to work out well. If he takes more populist bent on the fights that he's fought and why he's fought them, I think he has a better chance. But in terms of your question, Poppy, I've been very clear from the beginning. If you gave me Joe Biden and lopped 15 years off of him and gave me this record, uh, I would be very confident about the next election polls, notwithstanding that is not the case. And I don't, you know, navigating this age issue is hard because people are not just saying, how is he performing now? They're also trying to, uh, postulate how he'll perform, uh, when he's 83, 84, 85. And, uh, that's a difficult question to answer, but he is running. I mean, he's made clear that he is running. And I can tell you that the mood of Democrats is that. As long as he is running, uh, no one wants to challenge him and weaken him in what many Democrats consider an existential fight with Donald Trump. You know, now, if Trump went away, I think the feeling might be different. I don't know. But no president has ever been uh, benefited from a primary challenge and, and presidents generally win primary challenges. So, you know, 
I think this is in Joe Biden's hands and he has to decide uh, whether he can uh, whether he can complete this task and win this election and prevent uh, what many people fear would be a disaster for the country. And if not, then he should step aside. But, uh, you know, what I think and what other people think is not. uh, All right. That was the punchline, Senator Cotton. Then he should step aside. (laughs) What did you think of that? Well, I can translate that into shorter and more direct English uh, from our friend David Axelrod is that Joe Biden is too old to be president. He shouldn't run yep. for re-election if the Democrats want to win. Yep. Uh, Had you heard that? Hugh, Hugh I, I got to say, too, I mean, that he's right that people are not just thinking about today, but they're thinking about four or five years from now. I mean, you can go back and look at tape of Joe Biden just from the 2020 campaign, much less from, say, 2016 when he was out on the stump for Hillary Clinton. And you can see how much he's declined just in two and a half years in office. I mean, it is a simple fact of aging you that some people get old very fast. They, they may seem with it and together today, and within six months, they seem 10 months older. So we don't even know what Joe Biden is going to be capable of a year from now. That's another reason why I think he's polling so poorly. It's not just his terrible record, but what people project in the future. And maybe the worst case scenario, they know that a vote for Joe Biden is also a vote for Kamala Harris. This sets off the progressive left, Senator, as you know. It makes them very angry. But I am concerned about national security, so I don't worry about them being very angry. I pray for the president every day because I always do. But I do not think the country is safe if an old man who is visibly uh, impaired is running the country. Let me put it this way. Um, you know, we know from archives and interviews and historical research that Adolf Hitler did not think that the West would actually keep its promises to Poland in September of 1939. And in fact, he said of Chamberlain and the other Western leaders, I saw them at Munich, they're little worms. Well, maybe maybe Adolf Hitler would have calculated differently if he thought his invasion of Poland would have led to the sequence of events that brought Churchill to power in Great Britain. Uh, So it is a simple fact that aggressive adversaries like Xi Jinping don't just look at the United States in the abstract, they look at the specific character and abilities of the president of the United States. And they're looking at what does President Harris mean? Uh, Senator, always great to talk to you. You didn't bring up the Browns' big victory over the Bengals. I hope you watched that yesterday. Smashing victory. Congratulations. That's the first time I've ever heard Senator Cotton congratulate Browns Nation. We're going to keep that in frame it. Thank you, Senator. I'll be right back.